Uh, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, we're in Acts 14. Uh, so, so go ahead and turn there. Um, and as uh, you're turning, I just, I just want to start with a question. And the question is, what does it mean or what might it look like for the one simple, unchanging gospel of Jesus to actually be for the many, for the complex, and for the constantly changing cultures and individuals of the world? What does it mean uh, when, we, when we week in and week out say that the gospel is truth, it's universal truth, it's news that, that applies to every human person on this planet, that God loves the world, he loves all the people within it, and he has cleared every barrier between him and his people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What does it mean to take the specificity of that message and see it flourish in every kind of social and individual context imaginable? Well, it's not a super easy question, uh, but it's, it's the question that today's text is going to help us begin to answer. Uh, what we have here is actually the first of two sermons recorded in the book of Acts given to uniquely and explicitly and singularly pagan audiences. You probably notice as, as we've been reading the sermons of Peter and now the sermons of Paul the last few weeks, uh, they, they, they almost always, or actually they do always hinge on these preachers taking the Old Testament promises of God, the prophecies that he had laid before his people, beginning with Adam up through the ages, and pointing out meticulously how each one of these promises and hopes finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's been the strategy. To the Jewish audience, Paul would say, look, all these things that you've been hoping for, waiting for, longing for, they find their fruition in Jesus and in Jesus alone. But in this text... And then also in Acts 17, if you want to jot that down, that's the second pagan sermon. Uh, the preacher is afforded no such connection, no such background work to make the gospel intelligible to his audience. And so he has to come up with a different strategy. Um, John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, he, he put this really well. I'll, we'll throw it up on the screen. I'll just read it for you guys here. He says this, We need to learn from Paul's flexibility. We have no liberty to edit the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ, nor is there ever any need to do so. But we have to begin where people today are, to find a point of contact with them. And with secularized people today, this might be what constitutes authentic humanness, or the universal quest for transcendence, or the hunger for love and community, the search for freedom, or the longing for personal significance. But wherever we begin, however, we shall end with Jesus Christ who is himself the good news, and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. That's the goal, Door of Hope. I think Stott summarizes it well. So as we open up the text, we're going to see how Paul did it, and we're going to hopefully walk away a little bit more confident that in the place and day that we find ourselves in 2018 in the city of Portland, how we might be able to do it as well. Amen? Let's pray, and let's do it. Uh, Father, we love you, and we uh, are just so grateful that we have good news to share. Father, that, that, that you have 
entered the world. You've sent your son to enter the world, to take on human flesh, to teach and to live, ultimately to die, but yet to raise again. Lord, that the people that you love might be taken from far and drawn in close. That every barrier between man and woman and the God of the universe might be destroyed. You've done that work, and and for those of us that, that acknowledge it and believe it and trust in it, we say thank you, Father, and we pray that this morning you would nudge us the direction of being able to be more effective witnesses to that news here and now. Guide us and lead us, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 14. Well, we should, we should give a little bit of background. Last week, if you remember, Paul began his normal routine. He went to the Jewish synagogue and he began teaching how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And what happened was the Jewish leadership of the area rose up and they, they riled up the crowd against Paul and Barnabas. And ultimately, Paul shifted his sermon and he actually noted how this too was a fulfillment of prophecy where the gospel was no longer going to be contained strictly for the Jewish audience, but it was going to go out and blow the doors wide open to be for any and everyone. And Paul's unique role was going to be as an apostle to this Gentile crowd. And so on that note, they were sort of run out of town. And then in the first seven verses of Acts 14, we see them kind of going to a couple of places and doing the same routine. But we're going to pick up in verse 8. They've now arrived at a city called Lystra. And here's what it says. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began walking. A couple things to note here. Number one, Lystra uh, is approaching kind of the outer area. Um, uh, well, it's in Asia Minor. And out here, there's very little Jewish presence. There likely was no synagogue here. And so this town is made up of predominantly uneducated pagans. Pagans, people who had essentially no familiarity with uh, the God of, of the Bible, um, certainly not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and nor, nor did they have much education to speak of. And yet, in this new place, un, untouched by the gospel of Jesus, the healing power of God comes down in power. God himself chooses to heal this man born lame. So some congenital issue where the man had never walked, and in a small town like this, certainly everyone that witnessed this event would have known this man has never walked and he's never going to walk. And in that moment, God reveals himself by healing this man born without this ability to walk. I tell him to stand up. He walks through his vessel, Paul. And this is not only an instance of the miraculous grace of God coming upon this man, but it's also serving the the broader function of miracles we've been seeing in Acts, which is to authenticate the apostolic message of the gospel. We're in a new place with no context, and Paul and Barnabas are preaching a pretty wild message Uh, And often these miracles exist to prove like, no, there's actually divine authority behind this message. It's true. Pay attention to it. Listen. But what's fascinating is the the crowd's response. 
We read on in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was their chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. That escalated pretty quickly. So the people, they misinterpret the divine action of God through Paul as Paul being God himself. Paul and Barnabas both. They, they misinterpret the miracle and think that, okay, the gods are now walking amongst us. We better worship. And they actually had good cultural reason for doing this. This is fascinating. Uh, there was a story, uh, kind of a folk tale that the prophet Ovid uh, recorded, um, the ancient Roman uh, poet Ovid, uh, of this legendary encounter where, where essentially uh, the Roman equivalents of Zeus and Hermes came to this region in human form, disguised as peasants, and they walked around asking for uh, basically hospitality. Will anyone take us in? And everyone in the region that, that encountered them rejected the two gods, except this one elderly couple. This one elderly couple took them in, and as a result, the gods like, transfigured their house into this grand temple and then murdered everyone else with a flood. So, that's... That's the background that they come to the story. So these guys, this crowd is beginning to think, oh, Zeus and Hermes are here. We do not want to get murdered by a flood. Let's, uh, let's make our sacrifices. Let's, let's, let's appease these gods the way that, that our forebears did not. They weren't going to make the same mistake again. And I just want to just note here for a second, like, first of all, just note how eager people are to worship the created rather than the creator. More than that, can you imagine for a moment that we read this, it's kind of a funny story. We, it's, I think it's okay to kind of chuckle at it. Uh, but can you imagine the temptation to go along with this idolatry if you were in Paul and Barnabas' shoes? I mean, they, they literally think, if someone literally thought you were gods walking among them. I, you could imagine lesser disciples like, like giving like a, a Bill and Ted response, like, dude, they think we're gods. And that's a really dated reference, even for me. <laughs> Had my own little bouts. Uh, some of you that were here remember my little story of, of basically the Star Wars cult I started as a middle schooler, uh, and how quickly, like, <laughs> for those of you that don't know that story, that sounds really wild, and we'll just let you sit with it. Um, but, you know, basically the smallest amount of power possible going to my head, and that's just human nature. And in any sphere of human influence where you might find yourself in a position of leadership, you will be tempted to accrue to yourself undeserved glory and power and prestige and honor. And it's so sad to say we, we, we merely need to look at recent news headlines to see that the church does not escape this either. Church leaders don't escape this either. And, and to be frank, even in this moment right now for me, standing before you, uh, there's, there's, of course, a whiff of temptation, you know, a whiff of temptation all week, all morning leading up to this to make this a moment about me, desiring that I would come across as a good speaker or spiritually authoritative or whatever. 
It's a real temptation. It's a real temptation. So how do Paul and Barnabas respond? Let's read on. Verse 14, but when the crowd, when, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. Paul and Barnabas knew how to react with horror, with horror. The tearing of their clothes was a common biblical response of intense disappointment, intense disagreement, intense rejection. May it not be so, and they ripped their clothes to shreds as an act of extreme nonverbal communication. This is not okay. It's not okay. And then Paul begins to preach. And as with most of the sermons recorded in Acts, I think we're probably safe to assume that that the sermon itself was longer than the three verses that are recorded here. Luke is probably giving us the divinely inspired cliff notes of what Paul preached. But I think what Luke has, has captured for us is the essence of what Paul intended to communicate and his strategy in reaching this, this uneducated pagan crowd. And the lesson here is that different contexts require contextualization, a strategy tailored to each particular people. Paul recognized with this particular culture who think, who are ready to just sacrifice an ox right in front of us in the middle of the street, going to the Old Testament prophecies is just not going to work. The promises of God would be lost on them at this point. So he has to find a point of contact with them, as John Stott said. And the point of contact that he chooses I think it's fair to say is the biblical doctrine of common grace. You know that doctrine? If you don't, write that down. Common grace. Go look it up in your, your favorite systematic theology for you nerds. Um, the doctrine of common grace. The theologian John Murray devi- defined this doctrine this way. He said, every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. So typically theologians call saving grace or special grace to refer to the, all the acts of salvation. But every other bit of goodness that God freely chooses to pour out on people, both Christians and non-Christians, is what the theologians call common grace. And this is what Paul leans into. This is his in to sharing the gospel with this particular crowd. So I want to highlight in his sermon here five, five little aspects of common grace that he, that he uses. Tell me if you agree, if you see him there. First, let's just read it. So Paul cries out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness." So I see five elements of common grace. The first is this. He has created the good world that you enjoy. He has created the good world that you enjoy. 
He, he starts by saying this, this entire world that you enjoy, and, and probably they had uh, in their pantheon of gods a god for every particular function of the weather and all these things. They're, they're well attuned to, uh, to the world around them uh, and, and even ascribing spiritual significance to it. But, but Paul says, no, your empty gods, your vain gods have nothing to do with this, but there is a one true God who loves you and is good to you. And the evidence of his goodness is in the fact that he's created all of this around you that you're able to continually enjoy. Number two, he has patiently withheld his judgment. He says, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Though in the garden, it was declared truthfully that the wages of sin would be death, that to eat of the fruit would result in death. And it does eventually, as Josh likes to point out, the, the death rate is still one per person. But it's not immediate. There, there's a period of grace. Even on a national level, God has withheld his judgment, withheld his, his righteous anger. Though he sees people constantly destroying one another in his good world, he's patient. And with the nations, though he chose to work through the nation of Israel initially to be his witnesses to the world, he's allowed those nations to walk and even to flourish in times past, perhaps judged in accordance with the light that was available to them at the time. He's graciously withheld his judgment. Number three, he has provided material blessing. In this case, literally, he's talking about food. I mean, we don't make this connection, but literally the seasons and the rains and the sun and the way that the nutrient and all this works together, it's, it's God's active work behind all of those processes. And it's an act of goodness and charity toward anyone who enjoys them. Even, the, even these people in Lystra, God himself has been providing material blessing, literally feeding them by his own provision. Number four, he even has provided a sense of internal satisfaction. It says that they, uh, he did good by giving them the reins and satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. It's allowed them to find internal peace and happiness. Even anecdotally, we all know non-Christians who live happy lives. That is the grace of God upon them, whether they acknowledge it or not. Amen. And then finally, all of this, I think, points to the fifth point, which is that he has genuinely revealed himself. Not everything about himself, but particular things about himself through all of this. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. We see it in the Psalms quite a bit. God has not left himself without witness. As an act of mercy, he has left his thumbprint on the creation. That when you gaze at a mountain and see and are inspired with awe at the grandeur of it, the beauty of it, he's sitting just behind it saying, that's me. And it's a gift. They're all signposts that there is a creator God who loves and who is good. And though we suppress the truth about him, Truth, it does remain. So Paul points out, you guys got to hear this, though they have taken advantage of it, 
Though they have ignored it, God has been constantly and continually revealing truth about himself through his good, generous provision. For me, this is one of the great, incredible, overlooked doctrines of the Bible. The doctrine of common grace, listen, it's no excuse to indulge in the profane in such a way as to invite ourselves to sin, but it does, listen to this, it does provide a basis even for seeing every man-made thing that legitimately contains a measure of goodness, of beauty, of truth as a blessing from God for the purpose of enriching his world and his people. Isn't that beautiful? And, And the doctrine of common grace, it goes even beyond these points that Paul touches on. It also helps explain some extremely tricky questions that that crop up for us in our faith, like this. Why do we have this language of the sacred-secular divide? We've often had this uh, problem. It's it's not so on trend right now, but uh, in church history, there have been eras where the church is really focused on, okay, you've got the, the secular world out there that everything about it is evil and wrong and disgusting, and then you've got the world of faith, uh, the sacred, the spiritual things. And it's, it's uh, sort of this dualism, often tied with anything material is bad, the good is spiritual, kind of that Gnosticism. The doctrine of common grace blows that wide open, rightfully so, and says, no, no, no. Every, every square inch of this universe has God behind it declaring mine. And every bit of good is ultimately traceable back to him. It helps explain, like, why are, this is a good one, why are non-Christians, both religious and irreligious ones, sometimes smarter, more generous, kinder people than Christians? You ever wondered that? Someone ever kept you up at night? It does me. Why are there non-Christians that I know that are, frankly, better people than me? Common grace is one of the categories that helps us make sense of that, that every person, whether before they've chosen to follow after Christ, still bears his image. And they are still uh, able by his grace to, to pursue uh, knowledge, to, to attain real knowledge, that their minds are sustained by him. And they're, they're able to grow up in healthy families and healthy communities where they're loved and cared for and nourished. And they learn how to be healthy interpersonally. They're given opportunities to learn and to grow, and they're, they're given a measure of moral guidance and wisdom. That All of this, listen, none of this is, again, to speak of the good in and of themselves. It is God 100% behind each one of these things Amen. saying, this is for you. Enjoy. None of it's meant to terminate with the good in and of itself, but it's meant to point to him. So we don't have to be surprised when, there's a, when non-Christians do good. The doctrine of common grace should lead us to expect that and to praise God for it when we see someone doing good. It's not good enough to earn salvation. Apart from Christ, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags, we're declared. There's no saving significance, but there's still blessings from the Lord. Number three, why is there so much human-made beauty in a city as largely lost as Portland is? Ever wrestled with that one? We enjoy the incredible food that's here, the incredible art, beautiful architecture, 
could be something that make you doubt your faith. Like all these people seem to be getting along fine without Jesus and, and contributing beautiful things to our world. But for the Christian, we don't have to be shocked or scandalized by that. That is the grace of God behind each one of those things. The, uh, our favorite bakery just, gosh, I don't know how it happened. It just moved right next to our house, which is incredible. Um, beautiful little German bakery called Fressen. If you've never been there, you should go. It's up on Gleason. Um, like, I don't know if, if, if the owners there are Christians. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. If they're not, they're still making something of beauty and substance and goodness, taking the raw materials that God has left for them, cultivating it into something better than it, than it was for us to enjoy. That's the grace of God. That is the grace of God behind that. Here's the last one we'll tangent on. Why is non-Christian art so much better than Christian art? <laughs> Why? Of course, that's an extreme statement, and of course, not in every case is that true. But by and large, I'll just be frank, I never watch Christian movies. I'm always, I'm always scarred by them when I do. Uh, I, I, I love Christ and I love movies, but there, there are few, few directors that have, have figured out that delicate balance. Uh, we have a reason. We have a reason. The, the art of film is, is not something that God is withholding. He's actually allowing those techniques and those ideas and, and the ability to tell a powerful story to go into the hands of anyone. And when it's done powerfully, executed well, done for the purpose of beauty, truth, and goodness, that's God's grace behind it. My favorite film of last year, uh, and I'll, I'll disclaim it with, it's an R-rated horror movie, so don't take the... Don't take this as a, you know, research it for yourself before you go and decide if you want to take that plunge. But it's uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out, uh, for those of you that saw that film. Uh, it's, it's violent and shocking in, in some ways, uh, but I believe that movie has the grace of God all over it. Uh, I, as far as I know, Jordan Peele's not a Christian, but he was able to discern truth in almost a prophetic way about the black experience in our particular time and place and use the tropes of comedy and horror cinema to make us experience it. Make someone like me who does not know what it's like to be black in this particular time, in this particular place. Well, really in any particular time or any particular place. <laughs> there was a time. No, but he, he has been able to craft something that allows me to get outside of my own skin and, and just experience a piece of what it might be like to be in his shoes and to do it powerfully and to bring what's dark into the light, sometimes through dark means. Every one of these instances, guys, we have to connect the dots. Behind it all is God and his goodness. It's his goodness. So I'll say it again. The doctrine of common grace, it's not an excuse to indulge the profane, to invite ourselves to sin, but it does provide a basis for seeing every man-made thing as a blessing from God for the purpose of enriching his world and his people. What a good God. That he would distribute these gifts and these talents and these joys so freely, even, even to people who would have nothing to do with him, even to people who would publicly defame him and mock him. He is still gracious. Gracious. 
So what should we take away from this doctrine? I'd say our failure is bigger than we realized, but number two, that God's grace is bigger still. On the first point, though he created, sustains, reveals, and provides, we reject it and ignore it constantly. In many ways, we're content to just worship the creation rather than the creator behind it. It's right to celebrate beauty and goodness when we see it, but if it ends there, we're missing an opportunity to glory, to give glory to the Lord of the universe for whom all these blessings flow. But though our failure may be bigger than we realize, his grace is bigger still. His loving provision for us is unshaken even by our continual ignoring and rejection of him. And this even makes the gospel bigger as well. That though so many of us, even as Christians, are so blind to his grace and fail to acknowledge his common grace in our day-to-day lives, he still, by virtue of Jesus on the cross, declares, I dealt with that too. I dealt with that too. There's grace upon grace. Isn't that a beautiful doctrine, guys? Man. Let's keep going. So that's Paul's sermon. He looks for a point of contact, and he's going to point out for his purposes the goodness and grace of God that has been shown to these people, though they did not know it and though they have yet to acknowledge it. It's been all around them and inescapable. So verse 18 Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Just a couple of things to note here. Number one, note the fickleness of human worship. The crowd in one moment is ready to worship these two men and couldn't be persuaded otherwise. But immediately, they're willing to murder them by stoning. Number two, note the arc that Paul has been on. When we met Paul in the book of Acts, he was a He was an approving witness to the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7. You remember that? To now, he is the one who is willing to suffer being stoned for the gospel himself, utterly ready to lay down his life for Jesus and for the people that Jesus seeks to save through him. Man, it's a pretty beautiful arc. Let's keep going. When they had preached the gospel to that city, so now Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and then to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." So they've taken this long missionary journey out from Antioch, and we've got some of the stories explicitly, but they've been making disciples and preaching, and they got stoned here, and you know, keep going. Um, and now they're making their way back to Antioch, and, and eventually they're going to get back, and they're going to report how the journey went. But 
Luke kind of gives us a summary of what they were doing in these cities as they're making their way back. And they, they chose to leave the disciples, these new disciples that they've made, with two things. You see it? Number one, they leave them with a theology of suffering. That's interesting. Paul wants these early Christians to know that suffering does not mean that God has abandoned you. Surely, by this point, Paul was familiar with the words of Jesus in John 15. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Or in Matthew 16, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Suffering is baked into the DNA of Christianity. Did you know that? Did you know that? And Paul could speak <laughs> with authority, as we've, as we've clearly seen. This is a man who is willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And he wants to make sure that these new believers that he's helped bring into relationship with Jesus know that they too are not likely to escape suffering in this life. It's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. But... I'm sure, as part of this teaching, Paul highlighted as well, that for the Christians, suffering has an end date, right? Either with death, where we leave the body to go be with Jesus, or the new creation, when Jesus comes to establish finally in its fullness his kingdom on this earth in the new creation. Whichever comes first for you as an individual, suffering will have its end. Every inch of it will be done. There will be a, a, a sufferingless eternity before each of us that has trusted Jesus. And that makes the sufferings of this world bearable. Sufferings for Jesus and sufferings for those that we are trying to bring the news of Jesus to. So first, he leaves behind a theology of suffering. Secondly, he leaves behind churches. You see that? They had made converts to Jesus traveling through. But now when they come back, it's time to create communities of disciples. The appointing of elders was the appointment of leadership and structure to these new churches. That the plan has not been for Christians to remain solo and uh, Rambo style, but to gather in communities and it's so near to the, to the heart of Jesus that he calls the church his bride. Paul calls the church the bride of Christ. The church gathered, collected in community is his plan for maturing his people and for being the most effective avenue for witnessing to his world. So Paul wanted to make sure that these new Christians would be able to grow into maturity and this only happens in the joyful, painful, wonderful, frustrating, uncomfortable community. That's the avenue. And that's the passage. Um, so what should we leave with this morning? Lots of things. It's a packed text. I mean, any one of these verses could have made a, a compelling sermon. Uh, 
But I just want to leave, leave with a couple thoughts. First, to the unbeliever. Uh, if you're, maybe you're an unbeliever in this room, you, you don't know Jesus. Maybe, maybe you were tricked by brunch to come here this morning. <laughs> Promises of avocado toast and you ended up in a church sanctuary. I'm sorry if that happened. Uh, no, maybe you're here with a friend, maybe you're checking it out, whatever. To you, I want to say this. What was true to these Lyconians is true for you. God has not been distantly, dispassionately disinterested in you. He has been intentionally pouring out his goodness on you from the day you were conceived. Every instance of sincere goodness that you have ever encountered in this life, if it was really good, from the faintest whiff to the biggest smack, it has him at the back of it. And he has done even more than that. By Jesus' death on the cross, he has dealt finally and once for all with every inch of your sin and guilt that separated you from him. If only you'll turn to him in trust. So today I just invite you to finally acknowledge the source of your blessings. Turn to Jesus in faith. This is not, I know, and you can talk about this in community group, I know that there's a whole other side of this. Some of us have lived lives of so much pain and suffering and uh, abuse that even talking about common grace feels a little flimsy, and that may be true, and, and, and that's fair. Um, those are real experiences, and we're not, it's just not, it's just not a, a sermon on that today. But what I can be certain of is that every bit of goodness that you have experienced, every bit of provision, the Lord himself lies behind it. And it's an evidence of his goodwill and love towards you. And he wants to invite you closer. For the Christians, two things. Number one, focus your eyes to see the common grace displayed around you. How might you look at our city differently this week with the grace of God more clearly in mind? Look for bridges to share the gospel at work, at school, at home. This is one powerful bridge you can build, what Paul has demonstrated for us here. Number two, for you, I just hope you are deeply and freshly reminded of the immeasurable love that God has for you, of the incredible grace he is pouring out on you, both the saving grace and the common grace. Man, may this fuel our worship this morning with a fresh passion and a deep gratitude from deep in our chests. Amen? Amen.